debunked, so to speak, from secularists and, and this kind of thing. And so that's what he thought. Uh, but there's a problem with that. And that is, without Scripture, you don't have a resurrection, at least not very long. Uh, you lose Scripture, you give up the, the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture, you'll lose everything supernatural, in my, in my opinion. Uh, it, won't, it won't take long to, to, to lose all of that, because that's where we go when we doubt. That's where we go when we're like, did, was it really, did he feed 5,000, or were there just 5,000 people there, and we go out? Yeah, Jesus, they, he fed 5,000. There were actually 5,000, and he fed them. And they had food left over, and we're reminded of the facts or the particulars around it. Um, oral traditions, we understand how these work from, from, from childhood. We all play the telephone game. And how does oral tradition Oral tradition is fine for a lot of things, but it's not for who God is, knowing who God is, and what he has done. Because with oral tradition, we will... Uh, it's, it's subjective to both the speaker and the hearer, uh, just like we experience in the telephone game. Uh, but also we see this with, with other issues like, for example, the, the origin of our country. There are a lot of opinions out there, and a lot of people have opinions about what it, what it was like and, and so forth, and there are different theories and different ideas that come about and emerge through time. But if you go back and read, because we have them, firsthand accounts, you actually read the Founding Fathers, what they thought, what they spoke, and they wrote. It's very difficult to come to some of those apparent views. Why? Because we have a written account that you can go and you can verify. And so when it comes to special revelation, it is absolutely essential um, for this. If you pit against something like the, re- the resurrection, in my argument, you lose both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we, 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 I mean, to me, I, I don't know how you could uphold that view. There's so many passages I could think of in Scripture, how you could uphold that view uh, and, and uh, of the idea that we don't need the, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Um, I, I still don't understand it. And I tried to, to listen... Yeah. So, yeah, with the resurrection, if it was just passed down with oral tradition, and that, that's not his argument. He's not arguing for oral tradition, but what do you have left if you give up the, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture? You know that it happened, maybe. I mean, after time, there's doubt that's cast on that. You know, you go to a, a family reunion, and somebody says, who, who is that? that we, we're related to one of the kings. I mean, King Henry the, the fifth, the eighth, the sixteenth. I mean, and you know how it is. And then, so, oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, the cousin so-and-so, they did the genealogy. And then, and then you go on telling your kids and their kids that you're related directly to King Henry the eighth until one of your grandchildren does the genealogy. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not there because I've gone back and I've verified it. So we, we would lose the fact that it, that it happened, we would lose what it means, I think. I think that you could argue what, what, what the resurrection actually means, why it mattered. Uh, we would lose what it means for our future. We would lose, of course, who God is. Um, it would become subjective to our own preferences and, um, and, uh, and thoughts. And ultimately, we would, uh, we'd lose, we would lose salvation, 
I, I think. I think we would lose our understanding of justification because, in, in my opinion, our inclinations are toward works anyway, and that's where we would end up. So my, my, my way of opening today without getting too far down the rabbit trail is Scripture's important. That's the foundation that we laid last week. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. We need special revelation. We need God's Word to understand salvation. And then it goes on, and I won't read all of it, but it talks about the fact that there's many things that speak to the trustworthiness of Scripture, but nevertheless, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. This is what Sproul, I've quoted it now, this will be three weeks in a row, uh, the quote from Sproul, this is what he's drawing from here, that the Spirit gives his testimony with the Word and through the Word, never without the Word or against the Word. So the way that we know that the resurrection is true, even as we read the words in Scripture, is by the Spirit's bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So this is not a matter of just getting the knowledge right. There's a spiritual component to this as well. And that's what we see, uh, and that's what I want to look at today, is the role of the Spirit in our uh, assurance. number of places we could start. I'm going to start from John's gospel and what Jesus said about the coming spirit. He says in John 16, 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then a few verses later, he says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in this passage, John 16, three specific roles. These aren't the three roles of the Holy Spirit. These are three roles of the Holy Spirit. So if I say that mistakenly, let me just say at the outset, these are three roles of the Holy Spirit, not the three roles or the only three roles. Uh, So first, he will convict of sin uh, and, and righteousness and judgment. One of the Spirit's roles in our lives is to convict us of our sin. It's true that an unbeliever can be sad that they sinned. Uh, It's true that that an unbeliever can have grief over their sin. Uh, Paul talks about this. He calls it a worldly grief, and he compares and contrasts that to a godly grief. I think this, when this happens, it's usually associated with the consequences of sin, that an unbeliever can be sad that they got caught, An unbeliever can be sad that they have to face the consequences or the results of the sin in their lives. But he contrasts this with a godly grief, and he describes that the godly grief produces repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so godly grief over sin, that is spirit-induced grief over sin, Uh, produces this repentance or turning away from that sin. And this is not true, or this is true not only at salvation, but it's also true as we grow in grace, that this this continues to happen. It is an ongoing role of the Spirit. And so a fair question for us when we doubt would be, have I ever been convicted of sin that leads to repentance? 
A lot of times when we doubt, we think of the immediate sin that we're struggling with or we think of the immediate uh, suffering that we're walking through. And so we, we forget the, the, the broader context of God's faithfulness in our lives, that he has brought us to conviction of sin. Um, I, I saved as a kid, don't remember much of my life uh, before four years old, uh, the, of, of, of walking in rebellion against the Lord. But by God's grace, he's given me one memory of coming to faith. And there's actually more to the story. I just don't remember the rest of it. I hear it from my siblings and from my parents. But the part that I remember was we were having family devotions. I'm the youngest of four. My older siblings, evidently, I don't remember this. They were very concerned about my salvation. Uh, and so uh, they had been on my case. But I don't, I don't remember any of that. What I remember was we were praying and by the way, we weren't ever supposed to interrupt during the prayer. That was like super taboo. So the fact that I felt courage enough at four years old to interrupt the prayer was a big deal. But um, I, I, I remember conviction. Uh, it was, I had learned the wordless book song. My heart was dark with sin and still the Savior came in. His precious blood I know is washed away. So we'd learned that in Sunday school. And I stopped in the middle of the prayer and said, I don't want my heart to be dark with sin. And that's, that's all I remember. But it was, a, it was a gift of conviction. Uh, the reason I mention that is I often go back to that in my doubts to remind myself of what God did, even as a four-year-old, to convict me of the fact that I didn't want my heart to be dark with sin. So, the, you know, it, are there times in your life where you can go back and you see, yeah, God did convict me. I regretted it. I didn't want to offend God. I may not have uh, repented right away. I may not have desired the kind of holiness that I wish I had now back then. Uh, I may have fallen back into the sin since then. I may have had all these other charges I can level against myself. But can I go back and see the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life? Uh, The struggle with doubt for the believer often centers on some kind of regret or grief. And it happens, I think, most severely when we sin even more than when we suffer uh, or when we sin perpetually. And so if we are bothered by our sin, even if we doubt in our sin, there is evidence in this godly grief of the Spirit's conviction, evidence that we are His children. We could argue that if we never faced any regret from sin, this would be an indication of our lack of salvation. If I could look back in my life and I could see no regret of sin, no wishing that I lived a a pleasing life to the Lord, that I had no desire for that, then I would have reason to doubt my salvation. But looking back and seeing even the regret of sin in the midst of sin is an indication of the Spirit's work. So the godly grief that Paul writes about is an evidence that we are God's children. Another role of the Holy Spirit is that he guides us in all truth. That is, he is teaching us truth. He's guiding us in it. This would include the truth of our sinfulness, who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, all the benefits that are ours in him. And one of the benefits that is ours as a result of Christ's work on our behalf is adoption as God's children. Romans eight sixteen says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So notice again, it's the Spirit doing the work. He's the one who's bearing witness with us. 
which by the way, any of the Romans, I've specifically saved Romans 8 for week 5. That's what we're doing next week. Um, I, it's the reason I haven't done, I, I've, I've mentioned passages from Romans 8, but I'm specifically saving it. So uh, just because I think it's a really important uh, passage for assurance. What's that? The grade 8. So we're going to come back. Here's one one peek at it, um, and that is the Spirit has this work of bearing witness with our spirit, of testifying to who who we are, what our status is. And he, 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 the Spirit, not only teaches us truth, but he bears witness that we are God's children. First uh, John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. So if we know who Christ is, if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, uh, then we are children of God now. That's, that's, that's what we believe. That's what we hold on to is that good confession. Uh, even, even in our doubts, in, in the midst of our doubts, we hold on to the good confession that if I'm professing with my mouth and believing with my heart, then I am a child of God. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism, part of the answer says, Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So the Spirit's role or a Spirit's role or a role of the Spirit, I said I don't want to say the Spirit's role. It's not the only role of the Spirit, but a role of the Spirit is to assure us of the truth of our eternal life through faith in Jesus. And then notice that he makes us heartily willing and ready to live unto him. So, again, what a, a fair question we can ask ourselves when we doubt is, do I believe Jesus came and died for my sins, and do I have any desire to live unto him? A very basic question, but do I, do I believe that? Do I confess that? Do I acknowledge that? Is there any desire to live a life pleasing to him? Most of the time, and I realize there are exceptions to this, but most of the time when we face doubt, even in our doubt, we still want to believe. Most of the times in our doubts, we still want to please God. There's something of a desire. It's, it's why we even wrestle with doubt. If, if there was no desire there, the doubt itself wouldn't bother us. Yet here's an example of where a doubt can be a tool to discern the truth by the Spirit's power. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus has done what he said he's done, then I am God's child. If I'm confessing that and believing that, I am his child. So even in my doubts of God's love for me, even in my doubts that he's forgiven all my sins, my security in him, even my own salvation, even in these doubts is evidence of the Spirit's guiding me in all truth. As the Spirit does this, we also grow, though. We don't stay static. We grow in grace. In the closing words of a second epistle, Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here Peter's saying, careful of lawlessness or people who teach lawlessness or practice lawlessness, because the result is you will lose your stability. Um, so it's, there's, there's, there's a warning here that we should be wary of this, but since the Spirit is the one who guides us in all truth, we are dependent upon Him for the sanctifying growth. And so, you know, lawlessness, we could even think of the, the, the two extremes, although typically lawlessness is thought of in terms of antinomianism. But, you know, if, if, you, if you think of the other side of the pendulum, 
uh, of, uh, of legalism, that, that whole idea that we're saved by works or by our good works or, or what we do. Uh, you know, Peter's given a warning here to be wary of both because in both cases is where doubt is most prevalent. Uh, doubt would be most prevalent. How would we ever do enough? How could we ever do enough? So we aren't to turn our doubts into a battle for right knowledge alone but rather seek the Spirit's guidance through His Word to build you up in all truth. There's a spiritual component to what is happening. Third, the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. We see this expressed in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So a role of the Spirit is to magnify Jesus in a way that transforms us into the likeness of Him. Uh, this is especially strengthening because it's transforming our character. It's transforming who we are. There's fruit. We call this the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is part of the Spirit's work. This is a role of the Spirit. If it were merely a matter of knowledge then we could know ourselves, so to speak, or not know ourselves, but through knowledge we could gain righteousness. If it was just a matter of doing and knowing everything right, then we could, we could accomplish this. Of course, we know this isn't possible. We know that before we are redeemed, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can do nothing, uh, unable to both know or have faith to be transformed. But after we're brought from death into life, transformation comes by the Spirit magnifying Christ in a way that changes us. So he makes much of Jesus. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But also, we have to see that it is Christ who is at the center of the Spirit's revealing and transforming work. A number of Christians get off track uh, with the role of the Holy Spirit. I think, you know, if you look at the two extremes, the extreme that the Spirit doesn't even exist to the extreme of the Spirit is everything, and it's all about the, the kind of the, the, the extra, uh, uh, almost supernatural things the Spirit does. Uh, we have to be careful of those two extremes. The Spirit has vital work, but part of His role is making much of Christ. So whenever you hear claims of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, look for evidences of Christ being magnified. Look for evidence of Christ being made much of. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this adoption as God's children, by which we call our God Father, is accomplished in Christ and is transformationally confirmed in us by the Spirit. In other words, we're, we're not just convinced of the knowledge of it, or we're transformed in it. We're made to be like Christ. The work of Christ is, in His redemption is central to the Spirit's work of confirmation and transformation. So if you ever see those things missing, then the question is, is this the Spirit's work? Uh, might think again of the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question, what is my only comfort in life and death? The answer that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me 
that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So the Spirit is continually pointing us to our faithful Savior, Jesus. So a fair question that we can ask in our doubts is, do I have any desire to be a child of God and to call God his Father? Is there any desire that I am to be God's child or can call him Father? Again, I think in most of our doubts as believers, we still possess this desire. It's why our doubts bother us so much. Even a doubt of my forgiveness becomes a tool of redeeming light in that I desire to be forgiven. If I didn't care about being forgiven, (laughs) then I could question my salvation. But even the fact that I'm doubting that I'm forgiven is an indication that I care about being forgiven, which is an indication of the Spirit's work in my life. Does that make sense? So the Spirit works to convict us of our sin, to sanctify us in all the truth, and to glorify Jesus so that we will love and trust Him more. And then there is a result, which we've hinted at already, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, that there is fruit. There's stuff we can see. Uh, There's, in a sense, uh, you can measure this objective. Fruit of the Spirit, His work in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right. James writes, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What is James? James is one of those passages, uh, one of those books that probably stirs up more doubt in some uh, then, 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 but but, it, but you, it, it's, it's not hard when we see what James is actually talking about, that, that true faith produces fruit. True faith has a measurable aspect in that we are uh, desirous and growing in living in a way that pleases God or conforms to His will. Galatians 5.5 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So this isn't something that's unique to James. Uh, it's consistent with Scripture. But the problem is, we, you know, and, and, and we see, if you grew up anywhere, uh, really anywhere in America, but especially if you've ever been in the Bible Belt, You've seen the, the easy believism uh, that can be attributed to this, you know, I, I, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, but there's no fruit in the life of that person. And, 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 and you see this some with this false assurance. You know, there's, there's, the assurance isn't based on anything that the Spirit has done and who they are in Christ. The, the assurance is all centered around an experience. And this is problematic. This is troublesome, something that we should be wary of. And this is why James is addressing this. It's why Paul mentions this in Galatians 5, that faith working through love, uh, it, it, it produces something. It shows something. It demonstrates something. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The person who believes is thereby united to Christ in the power of his resurrection life, and such a person, sanctified in Christ, works for his glory. It is the natural outcome of someone who is being sanctified in Christ to work for the glory of God. 
Now, someone who is, is strong in assurance this morning hears that and is strengthened. Someone who's doubting this morning hears that and says, oh, but am I working for the glory of God? And again, we have to go back and we have to ask ourselves some of the questions that we mentioned earlier. Is there any evidence of a conviction of sin? Is there any desire on my part to please God? Is there any desire that I have to be called a child of God or to call on God as Father? I, I, I don't think so. Um, I might need to think about that more. Um, but, but I think in terms of the examining ourselves, uh, I, I, would, I don't think this would be out of line in what Paul's saying. We, we examine ourselves by looking at what is revealed in Scripture. So, again, asking these questions. You know, what do I acknowledge? What do I believe? What do I confess? Is, it, you know, is Christ who he says he is? Has he done what he said he's done? Uh, examining that sense. But then there's also this fruit language that in, in Galatians, uh, in James, and so forth, that, that we ought to see uh, that there, there are things happening in our lives. I think the challenge with that, with the fruit part, is we, we typically, um, uh, we're typically pretty hard on ourselves. Uh, we, we compare ourselves to everybody else. I'm not as fruitful as so-and-so, so maybe I'm not really saved, or I'm not as fruitful as so-and-so, so... You know, maybe I'm not doing something right or something's wrong. I think we have to be really careful with comparison. Uh, it's, comparison has always been a problem through every generation. I just think it is worse right now in part because it, it's part of its social media, but really part of it's more the fact that we have access to communication. You know, 100 years ago, you might not have known what your cousins were doing and ate for breakfast that morning. But now you, you know uh, that their, their children got straight A's and that they you know, just got a new car and they're going on vacation and all this kind of stuff. Notice also that what we put forth is usually, as, as believers, we usually put forth our righteous acts. So you also know that they've you know, uh, been on a mission trip or you know, uh, went to church every Sunday or whatever. And I think comparison is, is really um, dangerous in a lot of ways but especially if that's where we're looking for our assurance. So the examining of ourselves has got to be against the, the Scripture and not against every, everybody else. I don't know if that gets at what you're... Mm-hmm. This is, and this is part of why we do communion the way we do communion. It's part of the reason why we don't uh, administer communion to, to, to children, you know, uh, it, it, or, or, you know, we warn unbelievers. You know, there's an examination that is to, to take place. Eric? Mm-hmm. Many times, you know, we can be very destructive with respect to 
were in Sandman starting to labor for the image of the devil as the backstrap or something like Sandman. Mm-hmm. And actually struck. Yeah. You know, the, the, um, we're going to look at it in just a minute, but there's a, a verse that God hasn't destined us for, for, for wrath or condemnation. I can't remember the word that's used. Um, and, and, and it's, but, but this is what Satan wants to do. You know, Satan's a vandal. And so he understands theologically a lot more than we give him credit for sometimes. Uh, I think Satan knows we can't lose our salvation, but he would love to do as much damage as possible. He's, he's a vandal. He's a, he's a terrorist. And so while he is working uh, to, you know, to, to, to do all the things we might imagine in, in, in the growth of the church and the proliferation of the gospel and so forth, uh, uh, for, for, for believers, he is doing this, what, what Eric's just describing. It's that uh, he's the accuser. He's the accuser. And he is regularly working to accuse us so that we would doubt to destroy And there in Ephesians, you have both the explanation and then the outcome, the fruit created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so you see the same thought that we're, 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 uh, we're explaining now. John Murray, another great mind uh, with, with Sinclair Ferguson, he says, While faith alone justifies, a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of grace. <laughs> A justified person with faith alone would ne- would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of grace. It's John Murray, and so what he's saying is that uh, faith without works is you know is, is not real faith. True faith is going to exhibit works. John Calvin, he's another name you might have heard of, a good thinker. We confess with Paul that no other faith justifies but faith working through love, but it does not take its power to justify from that working of love. Indeed, it justifies in no other way but in that it leads us into fellowship with the righteousness of Christ. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's fair um, because, you know, you're, it, it, and it's what's just been said. A justified person is not going to not be sanctified. <laughs> and a person who's being sanctified has been justified. So, yeah, joined at the hip. That's a good way to put it. Westminster Confession of Faith. Faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it never, it is never alone in the person justified. But it is ever accompanied by all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works in love. So then, the Spirit does not only testify with our spirit that we can call God Father, but also produces in us His fruit by which we can be assured of our saving faith. And one of the 
the, the joys uh, in pastoral ministry is when, when I encounter someone who's doubting, talking to them about the evidences of God's grace that I see in their lives. Um, a lot of times when people are doubting, this is what they need to hear. They need someone who's willing to come along and encourage them that they see God's work in their lives. I'm not talking about a false assurance. I'm talking about someone who you, you genuinely see uh, uh, their, their, their faith uh, working itself out in love. But it's almost like you see lights come on, uh, a joy that, uh, that resonates. And it makes me think that we're not doing this enough, that, uh, that, that we could do this more. And I say this not necessarily of us, but just in general, I, but, it, but it, to include us, that, that we could do better at this. This is the verse I was referring to, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So look back at the fruit of God's Spirit that, that God's Spirit has produced in your life in the past month, in the past year, in the past decade. Do you desire to love God and others? Do you want to be gentle instead of bursting out in anger? Do you want lust to die and to exhibit self-control? Do you long for peace instead of wallowing in anxiety? Do you wish for more joy instead of loathing your life circumstances? All of these are evidence of God's Spirit's testimony in your life. But don't just look in your own life. Look in the lives of others around you. As believers, we ought to be one another's biggest cheerleaders. We ought to be one another's greatest encouragers. This ought to be especially true in our families, with our closest relationships, which are unfortunately often the places where we feel most criticized and most discouraged. Instead, encourage one another and build one another up, pointing out the evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in each other. Try it. (laughs) Instead of being critical of each other, try encouraging. See how it works. I think you might be surprised. Um, Tell each other how you see God's Spirit. Thank God for what you see is happening in the relationships that you're closest in. Because God has not destined us as His children for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have reason to be encouraged. Questions? Yes, sir. And to, and to take that even a step further, when we improve uh, our body in any way, it benefits our whole body. So when we harm our body, it hurts our whole body in some way. It has some you know, aspect. So when we're harming other believers, we're ultimately, I mean, it's the body of Christ, but we're affected by it too. And, uh, and, and, and when we're encouraging and building one another up, yeah, it's, it's, it's for the glory of Christ, but there's also... Uh, our strengthening or our benefit from that as well. Yeah. All right, let me pray. 
Father, we thank you for we thank you for your word that it uh, is, is that we're not left with just uh, an oral tradition, but we can go, we can read, we can look, we can hear you speak in your word, and understand what is true and right. And so we pray for continued discernment. I do pray for a, a, an increasing assurance that we would all have that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in assurance, and then Lord that we would also be ready and willing to encourage one another, to to build each other up, to strengthen each other in the faith. Instead of offering words of criticism or judgment, instead of comparing and contrasting, we would look and celebrate what God is doing in each other's lives and build one another up to that end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.